Working for Crusoe, Sam Park and John Ramey with you. Uh, looking forward to another Friday recap of foreign affairs and economic news. And Sam, you and I have had uh, our eyes on, and in particular, you have told me to keep my eyes on Nigeria. And just this week, after what we can call a disputed election, yes. and uh, there's a lot, there are... Um, Many parties that are skeptical of the results, but there has been a a winner declared in the Nigerian election, and it's Bola Tinubu, who is a longtime political kingmaker and former governor of uh, Lagos. Yes. And he has been declared the winner, but the two other major candidates are crying foul. Do I have all of that correct? That is entirely correct. Yes. Yeah. And uh, please just let's start this with why you what you explained to me when you said keep an eye on Nigeria in this election. Well, I mean, the thing is, Nigeria is a country that, frankly, I think people should always be keeping an eye. Uh, It is the largest population in all of Africa. It is the largest oil producer in all of Africa. And by and then by definition, it would also be the largest democracy in Africa. Correct. Uh, And mind you, Africa is a continent that produces a great deal of oil. And so all of these factors, I think, make much as we were when we were talking about Brazil a few weeks ago. Right. Right. uh, Nigeria is, I would say, the most important country in Africa, just as Brazil is the most important country in South America. It's not quite as important in Africa as Brazil is in South America, just because Brazil is such an enormous country geographically. But it is, I would say, handily the most important in Africa, a continent which I think will play a greater role in world affairs going forward than it has thus far. So just so all our listeners know, Nigeria, 225 million people. Six think. Well, estimated, right? Yes, but they haven't had a census in quite a long time. So we don't actually know. And that's just one of many, many problems that Nigeria has. But according to the estimates, it's the sixth most populous nation in the world. So this is a big deal, big deal that they're having an election. Yes. And mind you, this is a, a country that's approximately the size of France. Right. Texas. It's in that ballpark. Uh, and so that's a lot of people in. A, I mean, that's a large area of land, but that's, you know, the population of France is like 60 million. Right. So, I mean, there are many, many issues at stake in Nigeria. For instance, the average age of Nigerians is like 18. Yeah, the majority of the population is under 35. That's right. Uh, and it's uh, a growing population just as every developing country generally has a growing population, unlike in the West, where population levels are leveling off or, in fact, declining. Uh, Or even in China, the population declined last year. So as time goes on, countries like Nigeria will, should at least, play a greater role in world affairs. Okay, so Bola Tanubu a 70-year-old former governor of Lagos and a, uh, according to The Economist, longtime kingmaker in Nigerian politics, declared the winner with 37% of the vote that placed him ahead of Atiku 
Abu Bakar, who got 29% of the vote. And then there was Peter Obi, a third party candidate who got 25% of the vote. Now, that's right. Abu Bakar and Obi are both saying this election was bogus and the uh, Independent Election Commission of Nigeria did not execute a smooth election. That's right. And they are blaming technology, but it appears to be more than that. Well, okay. Uh, Anecdotal uh, witnesses telling press sources that it wasn't just technology. That's right. Now, I just want to back up a little bit and point out for our listeners who may not know that Nigeria only became an independent country in 1960. And they've only had an uninterrupted run of civilian semi-democratic rule since 1999. Uh, Between 1960 and 1999, they had a few elected governments, but mainly they would be deposed by military coup. And so it was generally a military dictatorship. So the first uh, election that inaugurated the democratic era in, in Nigeria was only in 1999. So they don't have a lot of experience running elections. And to say that this election was not free or fair would certainly be accurate, but that's not unusual in a Nigerian election. Uh, every candidate, all, all the three candidates that you just named, Tinubu, Abubakar, and Obi, they all faced rather credible allegations of corruption in their past. And again, that's not unusual. Corruption is, I would say, sort of such a big problem in Nigeria, as it is in many places, as we've talked about before, that it's almost not a political problem because it's just the water that you swim in, right? It's, in other words, corruption it's bigger than politics. It, corruption doesn't disadvantage any political candidate compared to his competitors. Right. So uh, the difference this time, well, there's a few differences, but one of them is that as in everywhere in the world, uh, everybody has a cell phone now and, and a smartphone, right? So you can see people waiting in line at polling places that never opened or opened only like an hour before they were scheduled to close, right? Uh, The INEC, that is the Independent National Elections Commission, uh, was supposed to be rolling out this new technological platform, but oops, it didn't work. And yeah, they told people a day or two before the elections, yeah, we're not sure this is going to work. Now, this doesn't really inspire confidence. And in fact, uh, at about 29%, this was a record low turnout, turnout right. of yeah. uh, Nigerians uh, to in the presidential election, which could have been as many as 80 to 90 million voters. I and read fact, 87 million registered and of some, those, yeah, something like 29% that, which, voted. Yeah, of which the overwhelming majority picked up registration cards and ballots and the materials they needed Uh, So this election certainly was, let's say, irregular. Sure. But again, that's not unusual for a Nigerian election. And I would also add that there's no necessary reason to assume 
that the irregularities of the election actually affected the outcome. In other words, Tanubu got what it was, 37 percent of the vote. Yeah. Right. And his closest competitor got 29 percent, 8 percent. That's a big gap. Yeah, that's not a small gap. And then Peter Obi finished 25. third at 25 yeah. percent. So. I would say that. uh for instance, this is the first Nigerian election since 1999 in which there has has been a credible third party candidate or th- that is a third party candidate that was thought to have a real chance of winning. That was Obi. Yes. And uh, whereas up until now, it's mainly been the two main parties, the the all progressives Congress, uh, the, uh, that is the uh, Tanubu's party, the, the incumbent party and the People's Democratic Party, the PDP, which is Abubakar's party. Now, just as an aside, as much like here in the United States, uh, the names of these parties don't really have any implications for policy or anything like that. They're just what the parties happen to be called. For instance, Peter Obi's party was called the Labor Party, right? Uh, again, these, these names don't really mean anything. But I think one of the more important factors in the election might have been just that there were three candidates. In other words, if it had been a standard two-party race, Abubakar might have won. In oh, other words, so you're this is a, a Ross Perot, H.W. Bush scenario. Well, except that I'm not even sure that Ross Perot got cost H.W. Bush that election, but that's a different topic. The uh, the some said he did, but okay, so a third a third party which is not kind of the standard paradigm definitely impacted the dynamic. Yeah. Now, I mean, I'm not saying that Abubakar would have gotten all of Peter Obi's votes. Right. But the fact is, if you combine Abubakar and Peter Obi's votes, it's more than much, much more than the, than Tanubu's votes. So, you know, there again, Yes, it was a corrupt and poorly run election, but that doesn't mean that it's an inaccurate that, result. Yeah, that doesn't mean that Tanuba wouldn't have even would would act would not have won. Right. Okay. Um, so, so go ahead. But no, that's that's about and the, and the thing is the thing with the election commission. Right. This is you know they were they're called the independent national yeah, the, election. What did you say? NIEC. INEC. INEC. It, it's yeah. called right. Yeah. Uh, and. But nobody really believes they're independent. I mean, right. you know, uh, it's again, this is just the, what they're called. This isn't some international body. This is just the election commission in Nigeria. Yeah, this is the electoral authority in Nigeria. And so, uh, you know, this is just one of numerous things that the government tried to do right before the election and failed. OK, another thing. This is this is what really got my attention. Another thing the government tried to do and did before the election was change currency. Yes. And I heard a report, I believe on the world (laughs) from public radio international that some in Nigeria thought that changing currency just before the election as, as destabilizing as that has been, was it an effect, an attempt to curb vote buying. So it was, potentially or it could be thought of as an anti-corruption measure even though it's kind of a nightmare for the people in nigeria right now okay well it's a nightmare because it didn't work 
right? I think that yeah, people that, aren't switching to the new currency, right? Well, they can't. Yeah. Uh, from what I oh, there's not enough. That's right. They haven't printed enough. Well, yeah, yeah. What I understand, they botched the printing yes. of the currency. Yeah. Right. So it might have been intended as a, a measure to curb vote buying, but since the incumbent government is the one handing out the currency, it might have enabled them to be the only people who could effectively buy Buy votes votes. because they were handing out the money. Right. Uh, Now, but, or they might've just botched it. (laughs) We, you know, when you live- Either way, that's really interesting. I've never heard of such a thing right before an election in any country. Okay, well, I mean, but that doesn't mean it's it's never happened. Right? Sure, I but mean, uh, uh, it certainly the, struck me as interesting. It is, but it could have been also a sort of campaign tactic. Look at us. We're a competent government. Here's our fancy new money, which is harder to counterfeit. Also, by the way, uh, you know, it was called currency reform, right? right? And this is the sort of thing that, that international donors just love, right? It, you know, uh, again modern currency, you know, uh, reforming, you know, policies and things like this. So uh, when you're operating in a country that has a great deal of corruption, uh, conspiracy theories are a dime a dozen, right? You you could. As we found out. Right. uh, And you could see you could hatch about half a dozen different conspiracy theories, all of which point in different directions as to what happened with the currency rollout. Um, but, I, but I think it's it's worth just repeating that again. It's the incumbent party, which is Tanubu, the winner's party. That's right. That either botched or, yeah, we'll just say botched for the sake of simplicity. This yeah. currency rollout. Yeah, that seems to be in undisputed. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, there. I guess there might be conspiracy theories that say they botched it on. Per, they they that they didn't actually botch it. They you know. But who? I don't think we're going to find out the answer to that question. I also don't think, by the way, that the challenges of the opposition parties are going to pan out. Right. I think that that Tanubu will be inaugurated and serve as the next president of Nigeria. And just to point out a couple of things that, to the best of my knowledge, there's no like widespread violence. There's no January 6th kind of thing going on. As far as I'm aware, that's true. And that's right. that is remarkable, by yes. the way. Right. There's actually a very good piece in The New York Times written by a Nigerian. Chimamanda uh, Ngozi Adichie. And uh, she wrote about this election and how thrilled she is there's not been violence that's in the new york times today um and that the other might thing go hand in hand with the low voter turnout although right. that might have been part of part of that might have been because of suppression but because of the currency crisis and many many other problems in nigeria i heard one commentator say you know the election might not actually have been the first thing on people's minds uh i'm not so sure if that's true but it's certainly something to think about And the other thing was about the currency change right before the election and buying of votes. That apparently is like the most standard practice in Nigerian democracy, period. Well, you know what? I mean, and uh, I'm not saying that to 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 criticize. I'm just pointing out that the notion of why would any government agency do something so fairly dramatic just to curb something like vote like how widespread is vote buying well apparently it's fairly widespread apparently apparently it's a practice enough so that you can understand why the the incumbent party did want to 
reform something. And by the way, it's not people- that flimsy or it's not that. Um, oh, no, no. That, it's, it's a real thing. Whimsy, you right? know? But I would point out that there are people alive today in our country who can remember things like that happening here. Sure. In and Illinois. So, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, let's not be wagging our fingers. Oh, yeah. No. Uh, yeah, certainly. But I just, you know, again, I was learning about Nigerian democracy. Right. Through this process. And, uh, in a way, uh, th- there are other remarkable things about this election that we can see as positive. For instance, the outgoing president, Muhammadu Buhari of the APC, uh, was, I believe, the last military dictator of Nigeria or one of the final ones in the 90s. And he was elected two terms ago, eight years ago. Uh and this, but this election this year was the first election since 1999 in which no previous military dictator was on the ballot. Now, they've had other presidents who were not previous dictators, but they always defeated a, a, a previous dictator, or the president was like Buhari, one of the previous dictators. So, this is the first fully civilian election that has ever occurred in nigeria again since 1999 and that's Uh, important yeah it's important to think about because you know we can say well the elections are irregular or this vote buying whatever but that's progress that's right and and so is as we've mentioned the lack of violence for instance uh after january 6th here in this country suddenly everybody's saying which is true right that the peaceful transfer of power is actually what makes democracy work that's its main advantage over other forms of of government is that power changes hands without bloodshed, right? And so if there's no violence in uh, the aftermath of this admittedly very problematic election, uh, that's good. For instance, that didn't happen here. It didn't happen in Brazil, right? There are plenty of other places where uh, if people think the election goes goes wrong, there's violence. And so... Uh, even though that Nigeria will continue to have a great number of problems going forward, at least that's not one of them. And I think we can all be happy about that. And I would say also that, I mean, of all the, the, again, very serious problems that Nigeria has, like we were talking about how young the population is, but there's also an enormous brain drain, right? If you're one of, you know, the majority of young people in Nigeria, you want to emigrate. And the top two destinations for people who want to leave the country are the United Kingdom and the United States. And that's because the national language of Nigeria is English, English right? Former Ni- British colony. Yes. And not just that, but it's so there are so many people of so many different ethnic groups and languages. There are hundreds of languages spoken in Nigeria, but the most commonly spoken one is English. Yeah. Two hundred fifty. This is Wikipedia. Two hundred fifty distinct ethnic groups and five hundred distinct languages. Yes. And that I mean, and so uh, all the campaigning is done in English. All the election materials are done in English. So and in fact, there are Nigerian communities, immigrant communities here in the United States all over the place. And many in the Midwest. 
Correct. But, the, you know, the, again, if if the United States is the top immigration, de- desti- one of the top immigration destinations of a country of 200 million people, then you're going to get a lot yeah. of them here. And we have gotten quite a few of them. And I remember last year after the war in Ukraine began and we started seeing all these news reports about Americans of Ukrainian descent raising funds for humanitarian relief for Ukraine, uh, perhaps, you know, plowing the proceeds of their own independent businesses into humanitarian relief for the people of Ukraine. And I think it's great that we got to see those stories and they're very inspiring. But in the American media, apart from one story on PBS last night, I haven't seen anything I haven't seen one minute about the Nigerian elections. And I think that the immigrants of Nigerian descent in this country, as well as their American-born children, by the way, might have appreciated seeing this on our news media programs. I remember after 9-11, Uh, One of the main lessons of 9-11 was supposed to be that, you know, things that happen thousands of miles away on the other side of the the world really do matter here in America. But do they? Do they matter so much that people on the news are even going to talk about them at all? I mean, just to give this some kind of statistical uh, grounding, uh, a 2016 American community survey indicated that uh, over 380,000 U.S. residents report Nigerian ancestry and uh, the highest Nigerian born population, excuse me, not in the Midwest. It's in Texas, over 60,000, I, I believe, mostly in Houston. I think um, that's right. Yeah. So this is not an insignificant population within the no. United States. And you and I have talked about this anecdotally just from my reporting on college sports. It is extremely common to see uh, uh, student athletes with Nigerian hometowns on rosters across all sports yes and so uh, and again this there's nothing surprising about this it's got the largest no, there's four hundred thousand nigerians here yeah, yeah you know so i mean uh i just think it's a mistake and especially right now again uh i hate to you know make every week about the war in ukraine but in that conflict as we talked about last week and in other episodes, uh, the Russians are very intentionally taking a posture of the West versus the rest. And they're not just saying things like this. They're, along with China, making great outreach efforts to the African continent in particular, and as well as other parts of the developing world. And that's not incidental. Right. If you're an African person or you know an African government official, you can and will say, we want to trade with Russia and China, and we want to trade with the Western powers also. But Russia and China never colonized us. Right. Russia and China never kidnapped millions of our citizens and enslaved them in other parts of the world. And for example, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, is in Africa right now uh, uh, for the One Forest Initiative conference. 
he doesn't seem to be doing especially well, and there's no real reason for him to be at this conference other than he believes, probably correctly, that there needs to be greater outreach toward the African continent on behalf of the Western powers. And as one of the main former colonial overlords of that continent, he's probably one of the better people to be in charge of that outreach, especially since he's a second-term incumbent president uh, and, you know, has some authority in his own government, unlike, say, you know, Rishi Sunak, who has only been in office for, you know, a month or two or whatever, however long it's been. U.S. labor numbers? Sure. Sam, people keep getting jobs, and it's not good for inflation. No, uh, but... Jobless claims fell again. Yeah, and I think that there's... uh, and this goes back to one of our early episodes where economics is a dynamic field, right? Things are never exactly the same in economics as they were in previous ages. And so it's constantly evolving in the light of new data. I mean, you uh, know what that makes me want to say, right? What? It's like sports, <laughs> but but it is. You can't compare eras specifically. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's a little more complicated than sure. that. But, uh, but for some of our listeners, that might be a helpful reference point. Well, it's a reference point. I'm not sure how helpful it is. <laughs> uh, I just, Sam, I keep coming back to, like, I, I remember Bill Clinton in 1992. Okay. And it's the economy stupid, right? And people need jobs. And that is just kind of um, seems to be like uh, written on a stone tablet of American political reality. So the notion that Joe Biden is presiding over this seemingly unstoppable job market and yet it's hurting him because of inflation. It just I, I mean, it's. I guess it's ironic, ultimately, and that's probably why I I find it. I don't think it is. It's just that that inflation wasn't a problem when Bill Clinton was president. And again, that's as we've discussed in previous episodes, probably just a product of of my having not experienced the inflation crisis in the 70s. I think that's right. I think people who have no experience and we've talked about this before. Also, people who don't remember inflation don't understand what a problem it is. Right. I mean, uh, and uh, I mean, politically. Right. Well, and, that's why I'm like, the jobs are going great. How is this a political liability? And yet it most certainly is. Yes, that's right. It, 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 it's sort of like uh, like we were saying last week about how people uh, who are too young to remember the Cold War don't True. necessarily yeah. understand the implications of the war in Ukraine. Right. If it's not something that's in your experience, then it's difficult to, to sort of wrap your arms around. But uh, at least inflation isn't spiking right i mean it's still a problem it's still too high but it's not like it was in the 70s when uh it was just you know double digits and you know for years on end years on end. and i would add find uh that to circle back a little bit that nigeria is an important oil producer today but the reason it is was because of the Arab oil embargo. The production of oil in Nigeria really ramped up after 1973 when new sources of oil had that weren't from the Arab world had to be found. 
Right. And so places like Nigeria with a command economy at the time could kind of flip the switch. Correct. Right. Places like Nigeria and Angola suddenly became Venezuela, uh, Mexico even. Right. As well as domestic sources like the Alaska pipeline, which was built in the 70s, partly as a result of the embargo also. So inflation of different kinds, especially energy inflation, has these sort of uh, really large after effects, right? And, and, and that was instrumental in the failure of the Arab oil embargo at the time, much as Putin's attempt to use energy as a weapon today is also failing. To focus back on inflation, um, a reporter, uh, an economic reporter for the New York Times, Jenna Smielek, have you read her? I have not. That I, she, that I can okay. recall. Jenna Smielek, New York Times, covers the Fed, has a new book out on the Fed, and it's called Limitless. And I heard an interview with her on Fresh Air with guest host Dave Davies. And she said that institutionally, this is this was earlier this week, she said that institutionally, the Fed is scarred by what it perceives as its institutional slow walking in the 70s. They kind of just every time the job market got a little soft, they backed off the interest rates. They kind of thought interest was just kind of built in the that um, consumers could handle it. Right. And so then when things spiked like oil embargoes and other kind of disruptive episodes, they uh, they were unable to control it. And and she pointed out that the, the current Fed the great lesson they have drawn from that is they will be relentless in their ratcheting up of the interest rates just to avoid what happened in the 70s. I mean, I think on the whole, that's accurate. But for example, in 2021, the Fed was, many commentators felt, too slow to act on the, on inflation. They kept describing it as transitory and that they might have taken steps earlier to combat the inflation by raising interest rates then, which they did not do. I would add, however, that, for instance, in that same year, a lot of people talked about um, Joe Biden's American Rescue Plan, right, which spent just trillion dollars right? of money, right? And, and people thought that that contributed to inflation. And I think they're probably right about that. However, if more had been done in 2021, to combat inflation, both by spending less money from Joe Biden and ratcheting up interest rates by the Fed, I'm not sure we would still have this robust job growth. That's right. Right. We'll never know, uh, but it's possible that they might have actually played it right. Because uh, if you're going to have runaway inflation, not runaway, if you're going to have inflation, you might as well have jobs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, Again, we'll never quite know the answer to this question. I'm sure some economists will try and devise an answer, but it'll be theoretical, right? It'll be that is hypothetical. Uh, And so we'll never actually know the answer to that question. But like you said, right, isn't it better to have people working? And I I think on on the whole, it is because I I think that a certain amount of inflation was just baked in from the pandemic anyway. Okay, let's touch on Mexico. 
I don't know how much you know about what's been happening. Here's what I know. The incumbent president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, passed legislation. AMLO. AMLO Obrador, who is anecdotally quite popular with the Mexican people I know. He passed legislation to hobble the country's electoral watchdog, which was set up in 1990, which helped bring about the end of one party rule, the PRI or in English Industrial Revolutionary Party, which ruled Mexico for a long time. So the incumbent has passed a law that is essentially hobbling the thing that allowed Mexico to evolve past one party rule. Correct. Obrador's a populist. Yes. Kind he's a of, left-wing right? Populist. Left-wing populist. Yes. Uh, again, anecdotally, people I know who own pro- Mexican citizens own property in Mexico love him. Uh, that's all I know. Okay. AMLO has, like every Mexican president, a single six-year term, which, you know, I think is kind of weird because I've, I've just sort of figured that if you like your president, you should be able to reelect him up to a certain point. And that's but, why they've been one party rule, because the president personally has to step aside. Has to step aside. So that's why you had that long run of one party. Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons, certainly. Right. I think some people fear that uh, AMLO might try and do away with the one term limit. Uh, Now, he hasn't said anything about that, but why would you? Right. Uh, So it's just something to keep an eye on. There have been quite large protests against the I mean, because the way he's trying to hobble the electoral authority is by just taking their money away. Uh, and so he's defunding it. Yeah. And so how do you expect to run a decent election? Right. If you're if the if you're taking money away from from the organization that runs the elections. So uh, it seems like these protests might be dying down a little bit by now, but it's something to keep an eye on. For instance, even though AMLO is from the left, he got along very well with Donald Trump. Uh, they were sort of birds of a feather just in terms of being populist leaders. And uh, uh, for instance, and AMLO is also like a construction guy, kind of right. Construction real like estate. That, yeah. yeah. But he ran for president a couple times before winning. And every time he lost, he claimed the election was rigged. Never mind that he'd been elected to other offices through the same election procedures. Right. And apparently those elections weren't rigged, but the ones that he lost were rigged. Now, I would also point out Obrador, AMLO uh, has his own party, Morena, but That's right. he came from the PRI. Correct. Yeah. Uh, but everybody did. Right. I guess, I mean, yeah. you know, for, I guess for, I, that's a great point. You know, uh, if that, you wanted to be in government, you had to play. Yeah, ball. It was the only game in town. Right. right? So uh, that that I wouldn't. For, well, you know, uh, I think uh, some of the Nigerian candidates all came from the APC and or the PDP, right? You know, again, these these uh, party identity isn't as hard and fast in some countries as it is here. Again, we don't. I, I'm. I, I don't think that Mexico is in any danger of being destabilized, uh, and so uh, it is just something to keep an eye on. Though Amlo has been in power for a few years already, and so we'll see what happens when his term is going to come to an end. 